Chapter Five of Principles of Economics, Book Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Principles of Economics, Book Four, by Alfred Marshall. Chapter Five: The Health and Strength of the Population. We have next to consider the conditions on which depend health and strength. Physical, mental, and moral. They are the basis of industrial efficiency, on which the production of material wealth depends, while conversely the chief importance of material wealth lies in the fact that, when wisely used, it increases the health and strength, physical, mental, and moral of the human race. In many occupations, industrial efficiency requires little else than physical vigor, that is, muscular strength. A good constitution and energetic habits, in estimating muscular or indeed any other kind of strength for industrial purposes, we must take account of the number of hours in the day, of the number of days in the year, and the number of years in the lifetime during which it can be exerted. But with this precaution, we can measure a man's muscular exertion by the number of feet through which his work would raise a pound weight, if it were applied directly to this use, or In other words, by the number of foot-pounds of work that he does, although the power of sustaining great muscular exertion seems to rest on constitutional strength and other physical conditions, yet even it depends also on force of will and strength of character. Energy of this kind, which may perhaps be taken to be the strength of the man, as distinguished from that of his body, is moral rather than physical. But yet it depends on the physical condition of nervous strength. This strength of the man himself, this resolution, energy, and self-mastery, or in short, this vigor, is the source of all progress. It shows itself in great deeds, in great thoughts, and in the capacity for true religious feeling. Vigor works itself out in so many forms that no simple measure of it is possible. But we are all of us constantly estimating vigor and thinking of one person as having more backbone, more stuff in him, or as being a stronger man than another. Business men, even in different trades, and university men, even when engaged in different studies, get to estimate one another's strength very closely. It soon becomes known if less strength is required to get a first class in one study than another. In discussing the growth of numbers, a little has been said incidentally of the causes which determine length of life, but they are in the main the same as those which determine constitutional strength and vigor, and they will occupy our attention again in the present chapter. The first of these causes is the climate. In warm countries, we find early marriages and high birth rates, and in consequence, a low respect for human life. This has probably been the cause of a great part of the high mortality. That is generally attributed to the insalubrity of the climate. Vigor depends partly on race qualities, but these, so far as they can be explained at all, seem to be chiefly due to climate. Climate has also a large share in determining the necessities of life. The first of which is food. Much depends on the proper preparation of food, and a skilled housewife with ten shillings a week to spend on food. Will often do more for the health and strength of her family than an unskilled one with twenty. The great mortality of infants among the poor is largely due to the want of care and judgment in preparing their food, 
and those who do not entirely succumb to this want of motherly care often grow up with enfeebled constitutions. In all ages of the world except the present, want of food has caused wholesale destruction of the people. Even in London in the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries, the mortality was eight per cent, greater in years of dear corn than in years of cheap corn. But gradually the effects of increased wealth and improved means of communication are making themselves felt nearly all over the world. The severity of famines is mitigated even in such a country as India, and they are unknown in Europe and in the New World. In England now want of food is scarcely ever the direct cause of death, but it is a frequent cause of that general weakening of the system which renders it unable to resist disease, and it is a chief cause of industrial inefficiency. We have already seen that the necessities for efficiency vary with the nature of the work to be done, but we must now examine this subject a little more closely. As regards muscular work in particular, there is a close connection between the supply of food that a man has and his available strength. If the work is intermittent, as that of some dock laborers, a cheap but nutritious grain diet is sufficient. But for very heavy, continuous strain, such as is involved in puddlers and the hardiest navvies work, food is required which can be digested and assimilated even when the body is tired. This quality is still more essential in the food of the higher grades of labor, whose work involves great nervous strain, though the quantity required by them is generally small. After food, the next necessities of life and labor are clothing, house-room, and firing. When they are deficient, the mind becomes torpid, and ultimately the physical constitution is undermined. When clothing is very scanty, it is generally worn night and day, and the skin is allowed to be enclosed in a crust of dirt. A deficiency of house-room or of fuel causes people to live in a vitiated atmosphere which is injurious to health and vigor, and not the least of the benefits which the English people derive from the cheapness of coal is the habit, peculiar to them, of having well-ventilated rooms even in cold weather. Badly built houses with imperfect drainage cause diseases, which even in their slighter forms weaken vitality in a wonderful way, and overcrowding leads to moral evils which diminish the numbers and lower the character of the people. Rest is essential for the growth of a vigorous population, as the more material necessities of food, clothing, etc. Overwork of every form lowers vitality, while anxiety, worry, and excessive mental strain have a fatal influence in undermining the constitution, in impairing fecundity, and diminishing the vigor of the race. Next come three closely allied conditions of vigor, namely, hopefulness, freedom, and change. All history is full of the record of inefficiency caused in varying degrees by slavery, serfdom, and other forms of civil and political oppression and repression. In all ages, colonies have been apt to outstrip their mother countries in vigor and energy. This has been partly due to the abundance of land and the cheapness of necessaries at their command, partly to that natural selection of the strongest characters for a life of adventure, and partly to physiological causes connected with the mixture of races, but perhaps the most important cause of all is to be found in the hope, the freedom, and the changefulness of their lives. Freedom, so far, has been regarded as freedom from external bonds. But that higher freedom, which comes of self-mastery, is an even more important condition for the highest work. The elevation of the ideals of life on which this depends is due on the one side to political and economic causes, 
and on the other to personal and religious influences, among which the influence of the mother in early childhood is supreme. Bodily and mental health and strength are much influenced by occupation. At the beginning of this century the conditions of factory work were needlessly unhealthy and oppressive for all, and especially for young children. But factory and education acts have removed the worst of these evils from factories, though many of them still linger about domestic industries and the smaller workshops. The higher wages, the greater intelligence, and the better medical facilities of townspeople should cause infant mortality to be much lower among them than in the country. But it is generally higher, especially where there are many mothers who neglect their family duties in order to earn money wages. In almost all countries there is a constant migration towards the towns. The large towns, and especially London, absorb the very best blood from all the rest of England, the most enterprising, the most highly gifted, those with the highest physique and the strongest characters go there to find scope for their abilities. An increasing number of those are the most capable and have most strength of character, live in suburbs, where excellent systems of drainage, water supply, and lighting, together with good schools and opportunities for open air play, give conditions at least as conducive to vigor as are to be found in the country, and, though there are still many town districts only a little less injurious to vitality than were large towns generally some time ago, yet on the whole the increasing density of population seems to be for the present a diminishing source of danger. The recent rapid growth of facilities for living far from the chief centers of industry and trade must indeed slacken in time but there seems no sign of any slackening in the movement of industries outwards to suburbs, and even to new garden cities, to seek and to bring with them vigorous workers. Statistical averages are indeed unduly favorable to urban conditions, partly because many of the town influences which lower vigor do not much affect mortality, and partly because the majority of immigrants into the towns are in the full strength of youth, and of more than average energy and courage, while young people whose parents live in the country generally go home when they become seriously ill. There is no better use for public and private money than in providing public parks and playgrounds in large cities, in contracting with railways to increase the number of the workmen's trains run by them, and in helping those of the working classes who are willing to leave the large towns to do so, and to take their industries with them. And there are yet other causes for anxiety for there is some partial arrest of that selective influence of struggle and competition which in the earlier stages of civilization caused those who were strongest and most vigorous to leave the largest progeny behind them, and to which, more than any other single cause, the progress of the human race is due. In the later stages of civilization the rule has indeed long been that the upper classes marry late, and in consequence have fewer children than the working classes, but this has been compensated for by the fact that among the working classes themselves the old rule was held, and the vigor of the nation, that is tending to be damped out among the upper classes, is thus replenished by the fresh stream of strength that is constantly welling up from below. But in France for a long time, and recently in America and England, some of the abler and more intelligent of the working class population have shown signs of a disinclination to have large families, and this is a source of danger. Thus there are increasing reasons for fearing that while the progress of medical science and sanitation is saving from death a continually increasing number of the children of those who are feeble physically and mentally, 
many of those who are most thoughtful and best endowed with energy, enterprise, and self-control, are tending to defer their marriages, and in other ways to limit the number of children whom they leave behind them. The motive is sometimes selfish, and perhaps it is best that hard and frivolous people should leave but few descendants of their own type. But more often it is a desire to secure a good social position for their children. This desire contains many elements that fall short of the highest ideals of human aims, and in some cases a few that are distinctly base. But after all, it has been one of the chief factors of progress, and those who are affected by it include many of those whose children would probably be among the best and strongest of the race. It must be remembered that the members of a large family educate one another. They are usually more genial and bright, often more vigorous in every way than the members of a small family. Partly, no doubt, this is because their parents were of unusual vigor, and, for a like reason, they in their turn are likely to have large and vigorous families. The progress of the race is due to a much greater extent than appears at first sight to the descendants of a few exceptionally large and vigorous families. But on the other hand, there is no doubt that the parents can often do better in many ways for a small family than a large one. Other things being equal, an increase in the number of children who are born causes an increase of infantile mortality, and that is an unmixed evil. The birth of children who die early from want of care and adequate means is a useless strain to the mother, and an injury to the rest of the family. There are other considerations of which account ought to be taken, but so far as the points discussed in this chapter are concerned, it seems prima facie advisable that people should not bring children into the world till they can see their way to giving them at least as good an education, both physical and mental, as they themselves had, and that it is best to marry moderately early, provided there is sufficient self-control to keep the family within the requisite bounds, without transgressing moral laws. The general adoption of these principles of action, combined with an adequate provision of fresh air and of healthy play for our town populations, could hardly fail to cause the strength and vigor of the race to improve. And we shall presently find reasons for believing that, if the strength and vigor of the race improves, the increase of numbers will not for a long time to come cause a diminution of the average real income of the people. Thus, then, the progress of knowledge, and in particular of medical science, the ever-growing activity and wisdom of government in all matters relating to health, and the increase of material wealth, all tend to lessen mortality and to increase health and strength, and to lengthen life. On the other hand, vitality is lowered and the death rate raised by the rapid increase of town life, and by the tendency of the higher strains of the population to marry later, and to have fewer children than the lower. If the former set of causes were alone in action, but so regulated as to avoid the danger of overpopulation, it is probable that man would quickly rise to a physical and mental excellence superior to any that the world has yet known, while if the latter set acted unchecked, he would speedily degenerate. As it is, the two sets hold one another very nearly in balance, the former slightly preponderating. While the population of England is growing nearly as fast as ever, those who are out of health in body or mind are certainly not an increasing part of the whole. The rest are much better fed and clothed, and, except in overcrowded industrial districts, are generally growing in strength. The average duration of life, both for men and women, has been increasing steadily for many years. End of chapter 5